Salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the first time in the month of October. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again, and glad that you can be here back with us enjoying this fine audio program as we are all together in unison, one people, in harmony, standing on that uh, cliff's edge, just all... uh, Singing together that we'd like to buy the world of Coke and uh, bring us all together in harmony. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, that that whole thing. Yes, that whole thing. That, that utopian future that was envisioned by a uh, giant corporation back in the uh, 70s, 60s? Oh, uh, I think it was 70s. Uh, the, the, the ad agency, what was it? Uh, McCann Erickson, I believe, came up with that whole thing. Sure. If, uh, if Madman is, Mad is to be believed, yes. Uh, um, yeah, but this week I'm the Dennis, the man who curses ill-built kitchen appliances. <laughs> you know, with all of the, the, the actual real problems happening in the world, finally it's good to finally have a first world problem to complain yeah. about. It's been so long. Yeah, you know, um, I, it's... So we were away last week. We did not uh, produce an episode last week. We were close to doing one. We were all prepared. Notes were sent off. We were uh, had plans to meet. But unfortunately, uh, you had, as you have now termed it, some first world problems uh, crop up. And uh, that caused the issues as to why we could uh, not get not get together, bang out a show last week, but uh, uh, spill the beans, tell the people, uh, espouse and uh, rage on and just... Uh, I just let the hate flow into the microphone about uh, these kitchen appliances you speak of. Well, well there's one particular kitchen appliance. I mean, it was just our dishwasher. For some stupid reason, it started leaking out of the door. It's been an intermittent thing for the last month and a bit. It, you know, some sometimes a dishwasher can leak for the most mundane of stupid reasons. Like may, maybe it, you might have a little bit of, you know, caked on crud around the, uh, you know, the, the seal around the door might be... Any sort of weird reason, like maybe there's like a, a thing with one of the pipes or whatever. But this one in particular seemed like it was coming from the door. So door's a sealed unit. I could have opened it up, but we bought an extended warranty for this. So, you know, after a big, huge rigmarole, <laughs> the TLDR with that is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to basically put a company on blast here to say I have had a poor customer service experience with the Brick Canada. So if you are looking for an appliance, maybe avoid going there because they're extended warranties. They basically make you go through telephone hell. Oh, phone this place. Oh, actually, you don't phone us. You need to phone this other place. Oh, but they told us to phone you. Oh, but... uh, (laughs) So you end up back and forth until finally you get someone who can help you. You know, it's an annoying thing. Hours after you started this process. Yeah, and unfortunately... We have to wait a month for a technician to get down. I don't know if that's COVID. They're probably going to blame COVID. I just think it's poor customer service. They they tried to use some sort of excuse of like, oh, well, you know, uh, well, actually, we have a, a f- bunch of people with dishwasher or with, uh, with, with washing machine problems. And, you know, those do take higher priority. It's like, why do washing machines take higher priority? It's not like a medical procedure or something. It's like, okay, people's clothes are also dirty. Okay. Did they put in a complaint before we did or or what? Or there were ones placed uh, at the same time or after you and those have been placed ahead. That's just the general uh, principle they have. Washing machines greater than dishwashers. Yeah, apparently. Despite the fact that, you know, they're about the same amount of money and a four-year extended warranty that you'd purchase, you'd think would end up being 
you know, wouldn't matter what you buy. Mm-hmm. It could be like the most frivolous thing in the world. Stop working. I need a new one. I need it fixed. Whatever. Oh, okay. We'll get that fixed right away. Unless, of course, you don't care at all about your reputation, then fine. But also, yeah, after the fact, I was doing a little bit of reading and apparently our issue with our dishwasher is not an isolated incident. A lot of people who own Samsung appliances find them to be garbage. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my little, uh, (laughs) I know we're a video game program, but hey, my, uh, my home appliance review. Don't buy Samsung stuff. <laughs> it's trash. And you have not had that Samsung uh, dishwasher for very long. No, we've had it uh, almost two years. It'll be two years in November. And the previous dishwasher we had was a Kirkland that I'm pretty sure was probably 15 years old. That just kind of, I think the basin itself started leaking a bit. Because, you know, plastic corrodes, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it, it just happens, but... <laughs> That was like an old thing that lasted forever. Like dishwashers, you wouldn't think would be things that go on the fritz super fast, right? Mm-hmm. They're they shouldn't. They're just a sealed box that water shoots around inside. Like that's, that's all it is. <laughs> they're not that complicated. So yeah. But anyways, like luckily, lucky for us, we, I, I, I had an old portable dishwasher that I used to have in an apartment I lived in years ago that we hooked back up. After a big, so what ended up actually causing the calamity last week wasn't necessarily that the dishwasher was leaking, whatever. So that was the genesis of problems. Yeah, that was the genesis of problems. I figured, okay, well, we'll just go to hook this old dishwasher up. Oh wait, our tap in the kitchen is one of those like you know all-in-one pull-out taps, and you know, like the 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 head has this convertible thing, and it's not a standard like regular tap head. So we I wasn't able to put the the converter thing. That this, cause that, those old portable dishwashers clip onto the, the tap, you know, like using that one, you've probably, if you, it, you know, it's basically a specialized connector. Yeah, it's a specialized connector that you just kind of s- screw off the old tap thing connector and then just screw the new one on. And it's a very simple thing if the tap is that type of tap, which this tap wasn't. So I figured, okay, I went over to the, you know, the, the, the local, hardware store and I just picked up a cheap set of taps because I was like, well, okay, well, I'll just take those old taps off and just replace them. Just swap them in, swap them out. It shouldn't be that hard. I've done this before. Mm-hmm. Taps aren't that hard. They're not a big deal. We have cutoffs already installed and fine. So the old tap was a big, <laughs> huge pain in the ass to get it off. There was old rusty parts that were just kind of holding it all together. They were way over tightened, like way over tightened. And yeah, basically had to like buy a whole bunch of extra stuff like that, um, that de-rusting agent that mm-hmm. you, that you, it's like, it's like WD-40. I think you can use WD-40 for it as well. Spray a bunch of that on it, get it in there and then let it sit for a whole bunch of time while doing that to get proper leverage to actually use a basin wrench to, after I borrowed off my parents to get under there and everything, had to like disassemble the entire tap assembly just to kind of be able to clip on some vice grips just so to, to kind of lock it in place so I could get the proper leverage to actually, you know, loosen it be, without, without it just kind of spinning around. And yeah, finally, after a whole bunch of rigmarole, got it all off, <laughs> well, all said and done. And then had to, you know, drill a couple of extra holes through, a you know, the, the stainless steel <laughs> sink just to <laughs> properly mount the new tap and everything. And it was just, 
it was a frustrating day. <laughs> so it was a matter of what started as, uh, in theory, a simple fix or a simple solution of, okay, Samsung dishwasher is leaking after only roughly two years of use. I'll just hook up this portable one. And then it just snowballed and yeah. snowballed and snowballed. Yeah, basically. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> when all was said and done, you know, I, I, I had started well in the early of the day that we were supposed to record that day. And then, you know, one hour turned into three, three hours turned into five. Oh, it's about recording time. I'm not going to be done in time. Ah, I can't just leave us with no kitchen tap. Mm-hmm. That's bad. Understandable. So, you know, when all was said and done, I think I was at it for 12 hours in total, you know, getting everything uninstalled and it, it, yeah. Granted, I'm not a plumber, but I'm pretty handy. Like I'm, I'm not the worst in the world. So <laughs> it's not like this was just like, you know, my own stupidity not being able to do this. No, it was a huge gong show. Basically, I took a bunch of pictures and showed it off to some of my, you know, more handy friends and they're like, what the hell is that? I'm like, right? <laughs> So, yeah. Fun times. Good times indeed. Also, just like a little bit of a PSA. If you're installing plumbing stuff that, you know, you don't need to refund things to get it tight. Just generally speaking, like, if there's if there's pressurized water connected, yes. But those connections are usually more designed for that. Mm-hmm. If you're just kind of like mounting something to a, like a, like a, like a, countertop or something, you don't need to have it, like, reefed on like crazy. Yeah, that F- you can... finger tight and maybe just a bit further than finger tight. Yeah, like, finger tight plus a quarter turn is usually what they kind of say, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't need to, like, basically impact wrench stuff on to the point where it's like you can hang 200 pounds <laughs> worth of, like... Yeah, like, you can do curl-ups from the underside of your sink. Yeah, it's like, no, you don't need to do that with your pipes. It's not great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, it just kept going. And it sounds like that was just a, a, a fun day of shit. Yeah. Never ending. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, fun, fun times, fun times. Yeah, that's one of the quirks of older homes too, isn't it? Yeah. It, that as you start doing on something, uh, or working on something, you, uh, kind of peel back the layers and, hey, there's this problem. Well, there's this other problem. This is inhibiting that, and what the hell? It's like, why did they do it this way? Why is this thing like this? I've never seen this before. What the hell is this? Well, I can't leave it like this now. You know, it's like all of these different things that end up like happening through the course of, you know, when you're fixing something, it's like, oh God, I can't just, <laughs> I can't leave it like this. Cause you, well, you, you could sometimes do like a little bit of a clutch just to kind of get things together, but. There should always be a nagging thing in the back of your head of like, no, if I do that, it's just going to be just a pain the next time I have to properly deal with this. So mm-hmm. I might as well just properly deal with it now. And yeah. Yep. Uh, I think as, uh, you know, uh, my dad used to say to me, do it right the first time or uh, you'll have to do it again. Yeah. He's a hundred percent right. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's why we didn't have a show for, uh, you people to enjoy last week. Yes. That was Dennis's day that was supposed to be our recording day that, uh, just turned into a never-ending series of, uh, plumbing and pipe-related kitchen problems. Yes. But thankfully, you know, no leaks, everything's fine. Good, good. And we, we, you know, we're, we're well set up, we have the portable dishwasher running still, so that, that's fine. You're you making know, a go of it. We're making a go of it. It's, 
it's the tiny countertop one though, so it's a little bit of a pain when you just have like, you know, maybe you've used a bunch of pots and pans to cook something and it's like, okay, I gotta do this in two loads, I guess, instead of the one that I'm used to because of my regular size dishwasher that I paid money for. Good <laughs> like, money for. Yeah, good money. <laughs> good God. Anyways. So, yeah, and hey, you make dinner once, well, uh, boom, there's a load of dishes right there. Or two. Or or two loads, there you go. Yeah. Ah, good times. Well, just think, the, the countdown is on till it uh, quite possibly gets repaired. Countdown is on till it gets looked at yeah. by repairman. Yeah, and if they, I'm just waiting for them to say something stupid of like, oh, actually, this doesn't, this isn't covered by the warranty. <laughs> this isn't covered by the extra... $150 you paid just to get it covered by warranty for an extra four years. Oh, yeah. Ugh. I'm waiting for that. And it's, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> if that's the case, I'll be like, really? Okay, fine. Fine. Well, we're going to buy another one then right now. And we're never dealing with you again. And I'm telling all my friends not to deal with you again. My friends have money. <laughs> True fact. Yeah. So, uh Yeah. I'm waiting for the day that uh, if the repair, ma- repair person comes and takes a look at it and uh, diagnoses it, uh, dishwasher is the write-off. <laughs> what, is this an insurance claim? Like- <laughs> Sorry, it can't be repaired. It's uh, you know, it's one of those fatal flaws in Samsung dishwashers. As soon as it starts leaking from the door, game over. It's a two-year-old Samsung dishwasher. Like, okay, well, what about this clause <laughs> in your warranty that says if you can't fix it, I get a new one? That? No? I'm waiting for them to, like, try to get out of that, too, if that's even the case. Because you know they will. Yeah. They will put off, uh, put on their best efforts to try and uh, uh, shirk their way out of it. Yes. Good times. Yeah. Regardless, we'll, we'll keep we'll keep you fine folks updated on this whole dishwasher saga, I'm sure. Yeah. These are the complaints we experience now as we've gotten on in life. Dishwashers yeah. and uh, appliance, uh, dealing with appliance store companies, furniture slash appliance store companies. Yeah. That, uh... Yeah. Remember when life was simpler? <laughs> when you wouldn't spend a whole day trying to work on pipes and plumbing and whatnot? And- yeah, when you didn't spend a whole day on your back underneath the kitchen sink trying to <laughs> refund something to get it, un- like, <laughs> to get a whole, like, bunch of pipes loosened because they've been t- way over tightened? Yeah, experiencing never-ending frustration by other people's uh, uh, mishandlings of the problems previously? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, good times. Yeah. Ah, uh, simpler times. But hey, we are at, on most occasions, your video game radio program or yes. video game podcast. And for the rest of this program, indeed, indeed. that will be what we are. <laughs> Until we get sidetracked on something else. It's entirely possible that it might happen. But uh, in the here and now, let's talk about some fun, silly things. Uh, those come in the form of ludicrous leadoffs. We have two of them this episode. And the first one, it's a fun one. Yet, if you want to take it in a certain way, perhaps a dark dystopian one, but still a fun one uh, that uh, the world's largest and most power- or one of the world's largest and most powerful companies, Amazon, they recently released a new MMO. Uh, it's uh, some have termed it a colonization simulator because that's always good. What we want in our advanced progressive times with our new, I guess, uh, new viewings on history. Yeah. You know, n- nothing like, you know, <laughs> maybe re victimizing some people. You know, some some of the indigenous people of our, you know, North America really just kind of re-victimizing them in many ways by just kind of saying, hey, uh, <laughs> this is what we think it happened like, and just really whitewashing it and glossing over any of the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that, that old thing. Uh, so 
Amazon Games uh, released a, a MMO colonization simulator recently called The New World. At least good on them for getting a game out. We'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> yeah, wh- whether or not the content can be problem viewed as problematic, fine. Amazon themselves is problematic at this point, though. So the whole conversation in that regard is a little bit moot. Certainly. So uh, the game is in beta, but it have, of course has players. This is the ludicrous leadoff, by the way. So there's a there, we're, we're getting to something good. We're, we're getting there. So yes, Amazon Games they have this out this new game out. It's in beta. It's called the New World. Uh, you can sign up. Uh, you can start playing it. Of course, do the testing. There's bugs and flaws and, and quirks and foibles as it's still in beta. Bear that in mind. But uh, in this MMO uh, experience, you will need to assign a name to your character. And if you are thinking that, well, this is a game from Amazon, I'm just going to, of course, do something ridiculous and name my character Jeff Bezos. Ha ha ha. Fun story. You can't. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, uh, yeah, so, so one of the rules that Amazon has in creating an account slash making a new player in this game is that you cannot quote impersonate any individual or entity, including employees or representatives of Amazon. So I don't know how far this has been taken, but for sure people have tried to use Jeff Bezos as an example. They've used all sorts of different variations on his name, either, you know, even phonetic, you know, slight misspellings or even puns, some puns on his name mm-hmm. have been kind of viewed to be like, they try to enter the name and it goes, sorry, this name is not allowed to be used, blah, blah, blah. Does that necessarily mean that they have an entire database of all Amazon employees as well as all the variations of all those names too? Entirely possible. Or is it just Jeff Bezos? Because he's maybe the most visible... Oh, I'm for sure uh, thinking they've got a database of, of names, variations on his name, misspellings, and uh, uh, attempts at combinations. No, of I, I I know that yeah. for him for sure. Yeah. But like, do they have the same degree for every other Amazon employee? Is my question. That's a good question. Like, or is it just Bezos that gets the the special treatment because of you know Mr. Richest Man in the World and all that? Yeah, richest, most terrible man in the world. So. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, bond, uh, villain level status. That's a, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know if it would go so far as every Amazon employee because there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Amazon employees and that would get a little unwieldy. And I'd imagine there are some duplicate names that would come up. Though entirely likely the bigwigs, the most noticeable names, the, uh, the, uh, CEOs, the COOs, CMOs, CFOs, uh, CTOs, anyone on the board likely all have their names protected in this way. But of course, the most entertaining one and most obvious one is Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Uh, there's a thing I'd like to bring up though for this that, you know, a couple of the news articles, including, uh, the one from Kotaku by Renata Price, uh, Kind of brought up one Twitch uh, streamer on Twitter who, you know, clearly has a bit of programming experience named uh, Tom Simonson. He uh, that, that, that's at Tom Simonson put out a little bit of a video showing what like why and how them implementing something like this is so egregious in some ways and why if they have this in place for this, why can't they expose tools to just the common Twitch streamer to also help prevent against you know, things like Twitch raids. And he pointed out like that part of, uh, you know, in the Twitch terms of use, you can make a bot yourself 
you know, using like something like a, a scripting language like Python or Ruby or something like that, that, uh, you can basically, ge- like there's ways to generate all variants of a single word. Um, but he points out how incredibly complicated it actually is. Like, so if you want to actually ban someone from saying a specific phrase or like, like basically build a banned words list, you know, to try to stop people from using all the different multi-character combinations and stuff, like, cause you can use like Nordic characters and things with umlauts and various like exontic use and stuff, all mm-hmm. sorts of whatever. There's multiple, like thousands of different combinations, even for the, if you wanted to ban the word them or something, like just as an example, he pointed out that there's actually some crazy combination, like per letter, there's some, thing where basically essentially there's like 11 million combinations of characters for this one word he used and he's like that's just one word so to actually try to manage your own bot yourself it's unreasonable like if it's 11 million characters or 11 million variations per word and you have to build some sort of sophisticated check for you know every combination how many entries is that going to be how (laughs) How how beefy of a server will you have to run to basically do all this constant checking? And for Amazon to have this for their game means that they probably have an entire application just dedicated to checking to make sure that people aren't doing variations on just Jeff Bezos' name. How much development time was spent on that part alone? A whole lot of man hours went into this. Yeah, a whole shit ton of work hours went into this to protect Jeff Bezos's name from coming up and being misappropriated by people in this game, New World. That's amazingly petty, amazingly small, and amazingly petty. Although, is it really that surprising? No. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't want to just like totally take the words out of Renata Price's mouth, but she says here in uh, in her article on Kotaku. Uh, you know, she's saying, <laughs> uh, uber rich men known for facilitating hellish working conditions and company policies are famously sensitive individuals. To be made fun of is, for egotistical weirdos, the highest form of oppression they can envision, and they will do some wildly cringy shit to try to get you to stop. It never works because they just make it so easy. <laughs> and that, that's a whole quote from them. But yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty on point because, yeah, you don't get to be that rich in bananas by, you know, being reasonable with individual people, really, right? It's true. It's uh, kind of telling that uh, in our modern society, the uh, individuals, if not uh, probably the, the handful of individuals who have the uh, greatest amount of money, of influence, of power uh, over humanity are the ones who have the greatest disdain for humanity. <laughs> yeah. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. To name two that come to my head immediately. Yeah. Elon Musk is also basically another Bond villain. To some extent. Although I don't think he realizes it. No, he's, he, he kind of reminds me of like Gul Dukat from Deep Space Nine <laughs> where he thinks he's like, he thinks he's, you know, such a hero, but like from the outside, you're like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Like he, he has like these visions of grandeur in his head. Like, oh, I'm I'm going to bring humanity to Mars, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. It's like, 
Yeah, but there's also all this other bad shit that you do that your family's been involved with that you're kind of just glossing over, and you, you get super offended when people bring it up. So, mm, looking at the blood diamond situation, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. The, the, there's that. But hey, flamethrowers! Yeah, great. That's just what everyone wants or needs. Yeah, exactly. You know, look, cyber trucks. So we can make a cyberpunk uh, type dystopian future come to reality. Yeah. Great. I kind of get the the sense, uh, the outward sense and impression that Elon Musk is someone where he'll see something in a movie, TV show or whatnot and think it's cool and then immediately send a, you know, a text after work hours because I'm oh, I yeah. imagine he wants his higher-ups to basically be available 24/7. Oh yeah. And, That's what they get paid the big bucks for. Yeah. Uh, and tells them, "Hey, there's this cool thing I just saw. We should do that." Mhm. And that's how things happen. And then the next day, he's going to call all these people into a meeting, hijack all of their whatever production schedule things for their various companies that they had on the actual go. Mm-hmm. The things that were actually making them the money in the first place for them to, you know, but let's divert a few hours to this new crazy idea I have, even if nothing comes of it. Oh, well, actually, why is the production on that pushed back? Oh, because you... Derailed, you know, 12 executives to do this one thing and now they don't know the priorities. So they're kind of trying to shift. Anyways, it's like when Homer got uh, free reign of the, uh, the, the car company and yeah. designed the Homer. Yeah. And, and, you know, his destroyed his brother's company. Destroyed his brother's company. <laughs> uh, but his brother basically told everyone, no, this is the common man. We'll do what he wants. He's got inside that none of us can have you eggheads. Yeah. And, and yeah, then destroyed the company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like that, except with more money and power and flamethrowers. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. Yeah, so that that's ludicrous lead-off number one, you know, the the, the egregious name-filtering thing, which yeah. actually yeah. is a big deal. Like, it's not just a simple, like, wave of your hand and they know it's Jeff Bezos' name. Tons of development time went into that just to protect probably his name and no one else's. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's a good question. Before we move on to the next story, if you know anyone who is an Amazon employee, if you're an Amazon employee, can you use your own name? It's a quick, like if you're just lower end, you know, if you're a member on the dev team of New World, can you use your own name as a uh, for a character in the game? Or if if we have any any odd chance that we do, if we have any listeners who work for Amazon, who have played this game, or maybe former employees even, who knows, just drop us a line. Let us know if you're able to use your name or anyone you know's name. With their consent, of course, just, you know, just Certainly. as a test. Like, just let us know. Uh, info at thearcadeshow.com, or maybe even a better way to get a hold of us is just through social media, at The Arcade Show on both Twitter and Facebook. Facebook on the evil platforms. Well, the, yes, those big evil platforms that yes, are uh, destroying society. Yes, we have our place on those. Uh, yeah, because we need to have our place on those, otherwise people might imitate us. Yes, such is the dystopian world we live in. But moving on to uh, you know other weird things about this dystopian world we live in. Sometimes people, you know, sometimes movies and whatnot are made that adapt video game series and or franchises just because you know money. 
It's true. Uh, video game franchises, of course, have a built-in fan base, and uh, movie executives are not only uh, mor- morally corrupt, ethically corrupt, they're also uh, creatively corrupt, so they just turn to anything with a uh, built-in fan base and will turn that into a new piece of cinema. And, of course, we've spoken in the past about the fact that there is a new Super Mario Brothers movie in the works. Uh, it's a uh, collaborative effort this time, being done by Nintendo and Illumination Studios, the people behind uh, Despicable, Despicable Me, the Minions movies. Uh, uh, I think there's the next Minions movie, Secret Life of Gru. There's The Secret Life of Pets. Uh, no, sorry, it's, it's The Rise of Gru and Secret Life of Pets. Excuse me, I confuse those. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so. They've got some chops. Yeah, they have some chops. And this is going to be an animated, an animated movie. So it's not going to be like a live action adaptation like the, you know, the monstrosity that they made in the 90s with, uh, uh, Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins. John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo Dennis and Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Yep. Though which, you know, for nostalgia reasons is still worth watching. It's not the best movie in the world, but it's, it's a fun movie regardless. It's also still nightmare fuel. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially the Goobas, who are all like professional wrestlers with tiny shrunken Gooba heads. Yes. And Yoshi for some reason being an actual real dinosaur. Yeah. But uh, all that aside, no, they're, they're making, I think they're going to be sticking truer to, you know, let's say the art style of the more recent games like Super Mario Odyssey or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So very bright, very colorful, very saturated. And I think that style actually is very much in the wheelhouse of what Illumination has done with their filmography to date. Yeah, of course. So it, it makes sense, but uh this is not new news and that news on it in and of itself is not worthy of ludicrous leadoff stature. So why are we talking about this? Well, it was uh, last week during the most recent Nintendo Direct that Nintendo revealed the voice cast of who are going uh which actors are going to be voicing which roles in this Mario movie. Uh the internet had their say basically over the the main names, main one or two names over this, but we're going to kind of go through the uh the rest of the names for the cast that were announced. So let us get this uh, out of the way. And right off the hop, Chris Pratt announced as the voice of Mario. Uh, yeah, which no one's happy about. <laughs> I haven't seen a single positive thing about that. It's a curious choice, not an obvious one, I have to say. Yeah. When I think uh, Mario being voiced in an animated movie, I can't say I ever thought of Chris Pratt. No, me neither. But at the same time, I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, off the air... I don't know who I would have envisioned, but it wasn't Chris Pratt. Well, after I saw one of the other names, I had a different thought, and I'll bring that up in a minute. Very but, well. But yeah. But as we know, what is a Marvel? What is a Mario movie? Not Marvel movie. What's a Mario movie without uh, Princess Peach? She, of course, will be in there and voiced by Anya Taylor Joy, uh, who has shot to fame with her work on the Queen, Queen's Gambit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe she's also in the upcoming Edgar Wright film Last Night in Soho. Uh, just to name a few, so her star has really risen. She be doing uh, will be doing the voice of Peach. Uh, Luigi will be in this. He will be voiced by Charlie Day. Yeah, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yep, and I, uh, that Apple TV series uh, was it Mythic Quest? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So when I saw his name, my thought immediately went to Danny DeVito as Mario. Isn't that so much of a better choice? That's interesting. Bringing us kind of back to the more gruff, like you know. Origins of Mario. I know people think of Charles Martin at Mario like, you know, the, it's a me, uh, the, the high pitched kind of, you know, stereotypical Italian guy voice that mm-hmm. has been for the last 25 years. But if you remember before that, 
Mario was originally Captain Lou Albano. Sure was. So like gruff American, you know, deeper voice, deeper voice, Italian American guy. Yes. And who, who is like the perfect, you know, representation of that now? Danny DeVito is a really good one. I think so. Or Joe Pesci or something like that. But you know, <laughs> maybe these guys are all maybe a little old for the role, but it's an animated feature, so it doesn't really matter. You just need the voice. The voice is what matters. Yeah. Uh, so Charlie Day as the voice of Luigi, which I can kind of see. But this next one, yeah. I think you and I will agree on. The internet seems to have agreed on Jack Black being cast as Bowser. Yeah. And I have a suspicion that Jack Black as Bowser is going to carry the movie. <laughs> Say what you will about Jack Black, but he's great in, in you know, limited doses. Yes, and like, as part of an ensemble. Yeah, like, the too much Jack Black for too long can be grating, I'll, I'll give you that. But, I mean... Mike, the legend of myself, also go way back listening to Tenacious D for the last, like, 20 years. So we also know that when he's part of something that's not just him just kind of being... Being turned to 11. Yeah, being turned to 11, he can be really still entertaining. And there's little Jack Blackisms that I'm still like, ah, I still like Jack Black. I can't hate Jack Black. Like, he can be annoying, but no, I still like him. And I can see him bringing a lot of that, and it'll actually work probably with as Bowser... You know what? I I can see it because Bowser is maybe not always played as an over-the-top character or portrayed as an over-the-top character, but Bowser is a giant oversized dragon. Yeah, he is. So, like, really, like, it's going to work. Oh, yeah, I'm totally going to see how this works. Yeah, but then... A curious casting choice for the next one, I say. Well, I would say the next uh, three are weird, the next three are weird. They are. They're, there's nothing obvious about these choices. So the next three are the roles of Toad, Donkey Kong, and Cranky Kong. And the voice of Toad is going to be Keegan-Michael Key. You know, of Key and, P- Key and Peel fame. Yes. Uh, who also, he's on another Apple TV series. Uh, I can't remember now, but it's a big musical one with uh, uh, Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live. But... He's done a lot of work since the Keen Peel days, uh, yeah. here and there, but, uh, Keegan Michael Key, uh, so that's Toad. The voice of Donkey Kong is Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. And the voice of Cranky Kong, because Cranky Kong is in this movie, not Diddy, not Dixie, but Cranky Kong is being voiced by Fred Armisen. Yeah. You know, Portlandia, SNL. Basically, like, making a bunch of niche comedy for drummers, basically, in the last few years. <laughs> for drummers and accent nerds is sort of like his wheelhouse, but, yeah, that's an odd choice. Those are all odd choices. I'm going to say, the fact of including Donkey Kong and Cranky Kong in this strikes me as an odd choice. Yeah. And why, what about Seth Rogen screams Donkey Kong? I'm perhaps the, just the 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 rough soundingness in the voice. Like he's always, it's not raspy, but uh, it always sounds like he needs to clear his throat. Yeah, which he probably does. <laughs> well, with all the weed he smokes, you know. <laughs> it's true. Yes. Uh, so maybe that I I don't know. It, it's kind of a deep voice, but is it you know giant ape deep? 
I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. And so, Fred Armisen is Cranky Kong. Yeah. I mean, Fred Armisen's a bit of a weird guy anyways. So, I mean, who knows what that's going to turn into and how he's going to play that. But I don't know. I, I have to say, though, one thing I kind of saw was funny. Someone made a little bit of a meme on the internet on the whole uh, Keegan-Michael Key is uh, toad thing where they, they showed a couple of side by side photos. They showed Jordan Peele holding up an Oscar or a couple of Oscars, you know, after get out or whatever swept, you know, the Oscar mm-hmm. or not swept, but like, you know, did really well at the Oscars that yep. one year, you know, him at the Academy Awards holding a couple of these Oscars up. And then right beside they showed Keegan Michael Key is toad. <laughs> it's like, that's where their careers ended up going. Huh? <laughs> Hey, it's work. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, some other voice cast roles were announced in this as well. Uh, Kamek, uh, Bowser's uh, personal magician slash wizard, will be in the movie. Makes sense for a character to be in there. That will be voiced. That role will be voiced by Kevin Michael Richardson, who in the list here is the only voice actor they have cast in the major roles here. Yeah. Everyone else is an actor. Or comedian. Yeah. Because the next role is the is the role of Spike, which is an enemy. You know, they're the green guys, black shells, they shoot the spiky balls out their mouth. Yeah. That's a role in this movie. <laughs> Will be voiced to some degree by comedian Sebastian Maniscalco. Okay. Great. I, sure. <laughs> Go for that. Go team. I mean, it... I understand there's going to be, you know, some of the, the villains, some of the enemies from, uh, from the pantheon of Mario pulled from the world of Mario pulled for this, but Spike, that gets a voice actor. Maybe it's just going to be noises. Yeah. And th- interestingly though, they have also in this initial round of voices, uh, listed, they also said that Charles Martinet, who has been the in video game voice of Mario for the last 25 years is getting quote unquote, uh, surprise cameos throughout the movie. So he's just going to do the exclamations, right? Because that's that's what I'm going to read into it, and that's my takeaway of surprise cameos. He's probably just going to do the the the, uh, the it's a me Mario or let's a go. <laughs> yeah, probably those couple of things that he, you know, to work him in there. A little bit of fan service, a little bit of honoring the fact he's been the voice of Mario for 20 years, if not 25 years since. Uh, yeah, 20, 25 years since N64. Yeah. That's right. So so they don't completely cast him aside in favor of, you know, hunky Hollywood star Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, which I still, you know, if, if you watch Parks and Rec, you know how weird that is. <laughs> that sentence actually should be to say in your mouth. It's also like Kumail Nanjiani now being jacked as hell too. Yeah. Like for his role in Marvel's Eternals. Yeah. All these guys who are, you know, on that quote-unquote chicken, rice, and broccoli diet, right? With no assistance from human growth hormone whatsoever. But that's a whole other discussion. Never mind. We don't need to go there. <laughs> I mean, I, I have heard uh, or, or read Kamal, uh, Kamal Nanjiani say he wouldn't have ever looked like this without the Marvel team behind him. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, and I'm sure that's code for <laughs> inject me with a few things so I can get a few extra, you know, sets in when I'm lifting weights. Yeah, let's speed the process up. Yeah, because you don't get those fast results normally, <laughs> unless you're like a crazy bodybuilder who's crazy, like dedicated, su- super dedicated, but uh. and basically living a, a rock style lifestyle. But, where 
But he also... He's pretty big. He also does... It's questionable how he's still making those gains at his age. There's a lot of analysis that people have done on these people. People far more qualified than me. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. So that is the initial voice cast. And... I I kind of fear, I'm fearful now with this announcement that Chris Pratt is literally just going to be doing Chris Pratt. Well, that's all he really ever does. Like, even in, he has done some cartoon voice work before, most famously in the Lego movies, one and two. Yeah, no, granted, he was okay in that role. I mean, but he was literally just playing, like, the avatar of, like, the everyman. Like, the whole point of his character was that there was not supposed to be anything special about his character, right? Yes. So... And he, he just played it with more uh, bright-eyed uh, and hopefulness and joyfulness to the character, but still very much kind of like him. Yeah. It, it seems like he established on Parks and Rec uh, a personality and a comedic style that is now just kind of inserted into different projects, like Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. yeah like, he, he, like the Lego movie. Yeah, with varying degrees of edginess yeah. thrown in or out, yeah. you know. Because he turns the edginess up a little bit when he's in Guardians of the Galaxy, turns it down for the Lego movie. Probably turning it way down to play Mario. Should hope so. (laughs) Unless this is an R-rated affair. (laughs) Yeah, this is the gritty reboot that no one (laughs) wanted for the Mario universe. (laughs) It's set in, like, Brooklyn in the 80s, when New York City was wet and grimy again. It's basically a racer head. (laughs) (laughs) David Lynch wrote the screenplay. Uh, Okay. Uh, so this movie, the Mario movie, when it comes out, which I have read in different sources, uh, I think I have read it in one source, I believe it was from Variety, the Hollywood Entertainment Trade Publication, though have not uh, seen it uh, used very commonly, but I believe it's simply going to be called Mario, uh, is set for, currently set for release on December 21st, 2022. It is going to be directed by Aaron Horvath, who previously worked on Teen Titans Go and Teen Titans Go to the Movie. Uh, also being directed by Michael Yelenick, who previously worked on Teen Titans Go, uh, is being written by Matthew Fogel, who wrote for the Lego Movie 2, the second part, as well as Minions, The Rise of Gru. So. Yeah, so it'll be in theaters next Christmas. So, all right. So uh, we got a year and three months before we can, you know, consider wanting to consider this as a piece of media. <laughs> if it even gets Finished, who knows? Like, we're still a little bit of a ways out. We are. It's entirely possible it might be pushed back. Who knows? But uh, we'll see. I'm sure we'll talk about it more as perhaps more uh, roles are announced with uh, voices and actors in those roles. Uh, I'm slightly annoyed by the fact that Kevin Michael Richardson is the only honest-to-goodness voice actor in those main roles. Well, we also don't have the full view of the cast yet. If that's the complete cast, that would be a bananas weird movie. That's true. So... I'm sure other roles will be announced, and I'm sure we'll probably see some more standby names, like from the the land of uh, you know voice acting. Like I'm sure we're probably going to see um, maybe a Maurice Lamarche, yeah, Maurice Lamarche, or you know Tom Kenny, Tom Kenny, something like though people will make appearances. That's true. Like uh, Billy West probably at some point. You know, like, the people who you see in everything will probably end up in this as well. Tara Strong. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Cree Summer, perhaps. Uh, fingers crossed. It, it always bothers me a little bit when it's just actors being cast for their voices uh, as being the hook to draw people in as opposed to someone actually using their voice to create a character. Uh, and then emote through that character and do performances of that character as opposed to having 
you know, as an example, Seth Rogen basically read and talk as though he's Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong. Yeah. And, and that's the voice of Donkey Kong. Cause I don't think Seth Rogen at this point can really do much to his voice. No. You know, again, the lot of weed smoking is probably going to impact that as well. Yeah. But I mean, I, in their defense, you know, maybe it'll work. Right. That's true. Like some people like don't really need to change their voice and like, it's just in their performance where you kind of can tell their character is a different character. Like I think of John Benjamin, right? Like, That's true. Like he never changes his voice. Archer's voice is the same as Bob Belcher's voice. It's the same as Coach McGurk's voice. So like is the same as the uh, voice on the Arby's commercials. Yeah, and it's just like that nasally sounds like he has a cold John Benjamin voice. Like you can't. It's always the same, but. He says things a little bit differently from time to time. You're like, oh, that he's he's playing Archer. He's clearly Archer here. Oh, he's clearly Bob Belcher here. <laughs> it's just so it's just he, he doesn't do anything to his voice whatsoever. It's just you know maybe an inflection and enthusiasm levels and things like that. So no, good point. That is a good point. I I, I had forgotten about uh, John Benjamin. Maybe he'll be in it. <laughs> That'd yeah. be fantastic. I don't know what role he'd play, but it'd be fantastic. Toadette. <laughs> Yeah, but (laughs) okay. You know, we're just uh, waiting to have Yoshi in there as well. That's a role to be announced. I'm sure Birdo at some point. I did see after this voice. uh, Wario needs to make an appearance too. Well, I was going to make the point that I did see people commenting online after this uh, voice cast list was announced that Danny DeVito would be a great Wario. Oh, yeah. There you go. Hey, if you got Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia there. But why isn't he Waluigi then? Like, he, he doesn't have, like, I don't have, like, you know, Luigi energy in my head for Charlie Day. <laughs> he seems a little bit more chaotic to me. That's true. You know, I don't know. Maybe he could do both. Maybe. <laughs> well, Luigi and what? We'll see. I'm sure there will be a second Mario movie, regardless of performance at the box office. Yeah, it'll be called Mario 2. Electric Boogaloo? But then they'll make a whole separate movie for Japan. <laughs> that's entirely... It's, it's way more difficult to digest. Yes. Yes. I like it. It'll be called like something entirely different, not even Mario. Anyway, yeah. Bit of a... It's a, basically a, an allegory for the plight of the working class. <laughs> Yes. Sold in black and white. <laughs> yeah. It will be directed by David Lynch. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. There you go. Perfect. All right. So moving right along, yes, that was uh, information that voice cast list uh, came by way of Nintendo's most recent Nintendo Direct. And while we're not going to recap all of it, uh, we do want to have our say on some of the, the bigger aspects announced in it. Uh, most notably, uh, we will start with this fact, the announcement that there's going to be uh, not just N64 games coming to Nintendo Switch Online, but also Sega Genesis games coming to the Switch Online platform as well. Those being announced for a release date sometime in October, though an official day and date of release has not yet been officially announced. Uh, that information will come in the days and weeks ahead. But uh, even so, we at least uh, have an idea of what games will be included in these first waves of uh, launches uh, or titles from the N64 and the Sega Genesis. And it's a fairly respectable lineup that they're leading off with. Yeah, I mean, uh, arguably... I mean, the N64 in particular 
let's just say it didn't have the strongest lineup of games overall. No. Um, but it seems like they have a lot of the staples there. Like for, for the games that were good on the N64, they were staples. So you, you have your, I mean, there's a couple of very notable things missing, obviously. Uh, but you know, you have Super Mario 64, you have Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Mario Kart 64, uh, Dr. Mar, well, those are like, I would say the staples. Yeah. Other ones get a little bit kind of muddy at this point, like Lilith Wars, Sin and Punishment, Dr. Mario 64, Mario Tennis 64, Operation Winback, and Yoshi's Story. Um, that's the N64 launch lineup that they've, they're proposing. Uh, the Genesis launch lineup is a little bit beefier, I'd say. <clears throat> it's got um, more titles, certainly, so just in terms of volume and numbers, yes, wins out. Yeah, like Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Streets of Rage 2, Echo the Dolphin kind of reminds me of uh that old Sega CD six in one disc that you had. Yes. <laughs> that yes. had like a bunch of classic Genesis games at that point on it. Uh Castlevania Bloodlines, uh, which is kind of a weird one. I've never played it before, but I've told it's kind of interesting. It takes place in America, of all places in the early nineteen hundreds, I think. Uh Contra Hardcore, Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine, uh Golden Axe, Gunstar Heroes, Musha, M U S H A. It's all periods between each letter. Not familiar with that. Yeah. Fantasy Star 4, Rise Star, Shining Force, Shinobi 3, and Strider. So all games that uh, have appeared on uh, uh, micro classic edition Sega Genesis consoles that have come out through the years. Yeah. And then they've said also upcoming games, uh, at least for the N64, will include Banjo-Kazooie, Pokemon Snap, The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, Kirby 64, The Crystal Shards, Mario Golf, Paper Mario, and F-Zero X. So some good games still to come. Yeah, but so I have a little bit of a beef with Nintendo Switch Online in general. Mm -hmm. They don't release new games almost ever. Like, basically, you get one game every, like, couple of months that gets revealed. It's a very sparse release calendar. Yeah, there's, like, nothing. There's no regularity to it. Yeah, so for them to kind of have a little bit of the audacity to say... You're going to have to pay extra for this quote unquote expansion pass is a little bit skeezy to me because we are, we're already paying for, you know, the, the Nintendo and Super Nintendo libraries of which you basically dole out one game every couple of months or at that, like, I don't remember the last time new games were released really. Mm -hmm. And there's no like notifications or no real communication of, what or when, it doesn't seem like there's any calendar of, like, upcoming releases that I've found anyways. I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but... The announcements of when new games are coming and what those names, what those new games will be does come across as being entirely random and arbitrary. Yeah. It's not a set schedule of every two weeks, every three weeks, every month. It's just kind of on a whim, it seems like. Yeah. Which is maybe not the best idea or the best uh, communication to have or best relationship to have with your uh, paying public who you want to encourage to keep paying for the monthly subscription to Switch Online. Yeah, no, granted, like, I think the main reason why you're supposed to be paying for Nintendo Switch Online is so that you can play games online with your friends. But really, the tangible thing is to release more games, at least like Xbox and PlayStation have had you know, various, like, similar systems for years before Nintendo had this system in place, like PlayStation Plus, for example, 
you get, you know, two to five games or you have in the past gotten two to five free games every single month. Mm-hmm. Like without question, first of the month, new games, add them to your library right now or else they'll be gone forever at the end of the month. Might as well add them. They're all free while you're a member. So you, you, that's a tangible benefit you get out of paying X amount per year. And you end up with, you know, 50 plus more games every year. So it's, it's worthwhile. Like you actually have something that you can see for it. Whereas this, there's no regularity. Like there's no, like, and then when they do release games, it's like bomboozle for the Super Nintendo. <laughs> Who cares? It's not always a top tier title you might be interested in. No. It's rarely a top tier title you might be interested in. And this is something we found too, even as time went along with Nintendo releasing games to the virtual console on yeah. both the Wii and, and their, you know, virtual store for the Wii U is the releases were great at the start, uh, but they kind of ran through the top tier titles, the recognizable titles pretty quickly. And then the, uh, release cycles and release schedules got more intermittent, more time in between, and the quality of releases went down. Yeah. I, I think they kind of have a habit of shooting their shot off the hop and then just kind of let things lag and uh, fall by the wayside. Yeah. So I don't know if this is going to be worth it. It's a good question. It depends on the pricing structure because, as you mentioned, this is part of the expansion pack uh, additional subscription cost required for this in addition to paying for the Switch online service itself. Uh, will it be enough? If it's What if it's only like five bucks more a month? Is I that- mean, maybe. I mean, they're, granted, they do say that some of these games will support online play like, you know, Mario Kart 64 might be kind of... Might be kind of a an interesting thing, but mm-hmm. still, like I, I don't know. Are they also going to start going back and releasing more games regularly for the other systems as well? That's a good question. I like, don't know. They haven't been. This is true. Uh, or are they going to put more of a focus on the expansion pack because, well, that's what people are paying more for. So uh, skew things a bit more that way. Uh, there's also scuttlebutt around the internet that uh, Nintendo might at some point release old Game Boy and Game Boy Color games for the Switch Online platform. That has not been officially announced yet, but uh, uh, we'll see. Do they start uh, getting into the business of releasing not just Sega Genesis games, but will they cut deals and maybe we'll have releases from uh, uh, like the from old Atari systems, you know, or perhaps the Turbo Graphics 16, uh, the 3DO, you know, who knows. Uh, we'll see where this goes, but uh, interesting idea. And if you really want to be just true and authentic and, and really just hit that nostalgia button that's in your brain, Nintendo can sell you something for that as well. The $50 uh, uh, price point is uh, what's been set for N64 and or Sega Genesis controllers. Modern wireless controllers being officially released by Nintendo that are replica nostalgia controllers for the uh, playing of games on the N64 Switch on or N64 portion and Sega Genesis portion of the Switch Online. Yeah. So fifty dollars for each one. Yeah. You get one. Yeah, now, granted, I mean the 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 Pro Switch controller is ninety dollars. It is. So there's that, I guess, but. Do I want to spend $50 on an N64 controller? 
Have you ever used an N64? You've used an N64 controller. Everyone in our generation knows how stupid the N64 controller was. It's a trash controller. So that one doesn't really make sense. The, uh, the Genesis controller might be fun for a laugh, but I think 8-bit do makes Bluetooth controllers. I, I, I don't know if the Bluetooth controllers would even be compatible with this, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, is it worth spending $50 on a Genesis controller? I'm just going to discount the N64 controller because why would you want to get one of those? They were stupid. I, I don't know. It's, uh, I guess it depends how, how authentic you want to be and how much disposable income you're willing to part with. Like if you just don't care. Fair. Sure. Yeah. But, or if you're a collector or something, I get it. Yeah. Fine, but still. $50 seems like a steep price just for a single nostalgic controller. Here. I thought you were going to say a single use controller. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Is that what these are? Oh my God. New one every time. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, the way that, you know, Nintendo makes some of these things out to be, sometimes you think that maybe they are single use. <laughs> I mean, anyways, with the way that they treat some of their games, like Mario 35 and stuff, anyways. Fair enough. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll bring you more details on that as they are officially announced, but also revealed during the Nintendo Direct was an actually new game, a new entry in the Kirby series. This isn't some side project. This isn't some mobile release. This is an actual honest-to-goodness mainline entry in the Kirby franchise. And not only that, it's an open-world 3D Kirby game. The first time we've ever seen one, its uh, name here in North America is Kirby and the Forgotten Land, and it is uh, uh, currently pegged for a spring 2022 release, and it's Kirby in the open world. There's debate whether or not it's an open world game, though. Uh, initially, of what was presented looks open world. Yeah, though we, we don't know how much of a sizzle reel that is or, like, how open worldy it'll be. It might be closer to – I would imagine it might be closer to Super Mario Odyssey, which is kind of open world, but, you know, it's you have smaller – like, they're not, like – Skyrim levels of like, I'm going to walk through the world basically. Mm -hmm. Like there's going to be like open levels probably. Yeah. Some level of constraint. Yeah. Probably. I mean, I'd imagine so. I mean, that seems to be Nintendo the way that they do things unless they are going to go full breath of the wild at this. Who knows? That was an open world game. Sure was. Uh, it was a damn good game. So if there's a game that they want to model other games after, that would be it. I think if they're going to go for this whole thing, but. Yeah, it's always cool to see new Kirby stuff, especially when it looks like they're treating it like a serious game, as opposed to just some fluffy minigame collection or something. Yeah, some super cute, uh, uh, silly thing that they're doing off to the side. No, it looks like Kirby's actually getting some some time, some care, some attention in this. And when the uh, announcement trailer started playing, we see Kirby kind of washed ashore on some, some new land and starts walking through the world and comes across a city. That uh, is being reclaimed by nature with uh, high rises and smaller buildings just being overgrown by plant life. And my first thought was, ah, they're making a near future dystopia. Yeah, the post-apocalyptic Kirby game. Yeah. That hopefully, I'm going to say, no one asked for, but maybe everyone secretly now needs? Who knows? Who knows? Or maybe the, the realization as you go along will be that Kirby was the big evil all along. Yes. And everyone's just running in terror from Kirby. Yes. 
Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's currently pegged for a spring 2022 release. I'm excited for this, but uh, one element I hope they include, uh, there will be some level of 3D platforming and adventure with that, and that's all fine and well and good. I want the ability to combine powers again. So, you know, uh, it's something that really hasn't been, or it's a mechanic that hasn't really been used uh, that often in Kirby games. The one instance I can recall of seeing it and experiencing it was in Kirby 64, where you could have, uh, you know, f- you know, combine fire guy with, uh, with bomb guy and shoot off it, flaming bombs or some such thing. Uh, there was the arrow and the fire guy do flaming arrows, things of that nature. I think they did that in one of the Super Nintendo games as well. Kirby's Superstar, maybe? I, I don't recall, but yeah. But it's not used as often as you would think. Yeah. Which would be a really interesting idea, and I'd kind of like to see that uh, at play here, but uh, this was the first announcement for it. Yeah. So like, we really don't know much beyond what was shown. Yeah, like, frankly, this is probably just a sizzle reel anyways. We don't even really know anything about the game yet, so... But new Kirby that, you know, is going to be 3D and has real production value put into it, so it's that'll true. be good. Exactly. So... Uh, that's the big stuff from the Nintendo Direct uh, that we wanted to recap and give our uh, two cents on. Uh, but we also have some other Nintendo news that we'll get to. As you perhaps are aware, earlier this year, Nintendo opened up their theme park in Japan at Universal Studios Japan. It's called Super Nintendo World, and currently it's got uh, Princess Peach's Castle, Bowser Castle. There are some toad houses that are the shops around. There's a Yoshi ride. Uh, so... There, there's a, a bit of stuff there. It's not an overwhelming amount of stuff. It's not like a full, honest to God, you know, Disney World size theme park that's all decked out in Nintendo stuff. No, not yet. But it, it sounds like, uh, given what was announced this week, that, uh, Nintendo's footprint of Super Nintendo World is going to expand because Nintendo and Universal Studios announced this week that they're Theme Park in Japan will be getting an all-new Donkey Kong-themed area that is set for uh, opening up in 2024. Apparently, this Donkey Kong-themed area is going to expand the size of Nintendo's footprint in Universal Studios Japan by 70% and will include a new roller coaster ride, among other attractions. From what I've seen, it looks like it might be a minecart-themed roller coaster-type ride. Hmm. So... Uh, the expansion for the park has been widely expected as apparently there's one area of the current park that has a warp pipe with Donkey Kong logos on it, just kind of tucked away in the corner. So Universal describes their plans for the area as including, quote, interactive experiences and themed merchandise and food. Uh, in the press release, Shigeru Miyamoto said, quote, I'm very happy to be able to make the world of Donkey Kong a reality following the world of Mario. I'm looking forward to creating a thrilling Donkey Kong experience with the amazing team at Universal. It will take some time until it is completed, but it will be a unique area for not only people who are familiar with Donkey Kong games, but for all guests, end quote. And so once this is uh, opened up in Japan, it will give kind of the blueprint and template for other Universal theme parks to follow, uh, as there's currently Nintendo Worlds being built at the Universal Studios in California, as well as in Orlando, Florida. And I'd imagine you go to one, you go to them all. And let's not forget about your own Nintendo. (laughs) (laughs) Your own Nintendo land. Yes. Which, uh... (laughs) My children, they need wine. <laughs> Anyways, uh. If you get the reference, good for you. If yeah, you don't, look no, it up. I'm not just being, you know, culturally insensitive towards French people. And also, if I was, hey, I'm part French, it's fine. 
Oh, well then. I'm going to throw up my arms and say it's okay. Acceptable. That's how it works, right? Totally. <laughs> totally. So, uh, yeah. So with the uh, Mario area of the theme park now established, a Donkey Kong-themed area coming down the pipeline, uh, what other world or what other uh, franchise do you think Nintendo should do a third theme park area based on? There's Mario already, Donkey Kong coming. What uh, What do you think would make a good third area? Metroid would be interesting for, you know, to have a bit of a darker experience, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that. I mean, you could also do a Zelda-themed thing. Mm-hmm. Go heavy on the fantasy. It, yeah. And actually would have a castle as well. Yeah. It could be, you know, also vaguely sort of like, you know, a Medieval Times type setup, too, you know, where, you know, you could have little themed restaurants that are selling, like, you know, whatever kind of food that you might get in Breath of the Wild or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you could also do a Kirby-themed thing. Don't, though I don't really know what that would look like necessarily. I feel like a Kirby themed area would be more for a uh, uh, much younger audience. Yeah. Uh, like, you or, know. or Pokemon themed area as well. Ooh, hell, you could do a whole park based on Pokemon. Yeah. But that's the thing. Nintendo has no shortage of franchises they could pull from this. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but yes, Donkey Kong is the next themed area, which, uh, from my understanding and, and reading of uh, theme park insidery type blogs and, and uh, artwork and what, th- Whatnot. This was expected for a while. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like it's going to be coming to all the areas. So uh, that's expected, but won't come till 2024. But uh, another thing that kind of maybe was expected of Nintendo was that they might have some more enhancements to their uh, OLED edition of the Switch model that is coming out in just a few days time, a little bit uh, about a week away here in the month of October. But when they announced it, there was a bit of uh, disappointment with uh, what Nintendo was doing with the Switch OLED edition in that it didn't really do much other than swap out the screen. Yeah, so... Oh, and gave a new color. It's white. Yeah. This is a bit of a weird story because, uh, well, a few days ago, Bloomberg had reported that at least 11 companies, including Zynga, reported to have tools from Nintendo to make 4K Switch games. Um, this report that Bloomberg had, uh, went on to say that these companies did have a 4k development kit for the switch and that this so far unannounced 4k switch won't come out until late next year at the earliest. Uh, though it wasn't long after this report went out that Nintendo issued a denial statement. Uh, and that statement was, and I quote, a news report on September 30th, 2021 JST falsely claims that Nintendo is supplying tools to drive game development for Nintendo Switch with 4K support. To ensure correct understanding among our investors and and customers, we want to clarify that this report is not true. We also want to restate that, as we announced in July, we have no plans for any new model other than the Nintendo Switch OLED model, which will launch on October 8th, 2021. Uh... Though Bloomberg carried a statement from Zynga denying, uh, yeah, Bloomberg also carried a statement from Zynga denying that it had 4K Nintendo Switch dev kit. (laughs) And I quote, to clarify, Zynga does not have a 4K development kit from Nintendo, (laughs) said Zynga. Uh, So not sure what exactly is going on here. Was this just some rogue Bloomberg person trying to stir up some shit or what? (laughs) I don't know exactly what this was, but... Um, yeah, Bloomberg did say this OLED Nintendo Switch was meant to contain a faster chip from NVIDIA that would have enabled 4K, but the 4K capability didn't come to pass. 
Uh, Bloomberg didn't know when the design changed, but a uh, source indicated the reason for the change was, and I quote, component shortages sparked by the pandemic. Bloomberg said Nintendo, they had already sent 4K Switch dev kits out by July. Um, so is this OLED thing actually a 4K? Does it support 4K and Nintendo just don't want people to turn that on? That's sort of maybe the impression I'm getting. Uh, the impression I'm having, uh, given Nintendo's uh, f- insistence, very strong rebuttal and denial of uh, the Bloomberg reporting, is that they maybe don't want uh, to dissuade people from buying the Switch OLED model. They maybe don't want people to sit on the sidelines or wait for the better model that has 4K support to come out. Well, th- but that's the confusing thing. Uh Is the, f- like... Is there going to be a 4K model? Or is the OLED model actually the 4K model? And then they just are hesitant to actually let that be known. Well, for, for consistency of experience across original Switch and OLED Switch. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Well, like that would make sense if that was the case. It sounds like uh, the intention was that this OLED model would have 4K capabilities, but as with everything, semiconductor sh- uh, shortages and whatnot, supply chain, supply chain disruptions, uh, basically getting parts from, you know, point A to point B have just gone absolutely out the window. Uh, d- plans changed. And right. instead of delaying the whole model itself, they just went ahead with current Switch infrastructure inside. Right, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I get it. It was meant to be 4K, but it's not now, and yeah. Yeah. So, they had the plans already, but literally they needed the chip. They can't do the chip, so they uh, basically went for plan B, which was current infrastructure, which is it's identical infrastructure inside. Yeah, it just has a slightly better screen. Yeah, which we criticized uh Previously, too, that there's no yeah. change, no difference, no upgrade or uptick in battery life even. Yeah. Uh, there, there's literally no difference other than screen and shell. Oh, and better speakers and the kickstand is a bit, but fundamentally and structurally, there's nothing different. Yeah. So, So make of this what you will, but if it's uh, to be believed, if Bloomberg's reporting remains accurate, in spite of the denials from both Zynga and Nintendo... There were plans for this to be a 4K uh, Switch, uh, or at least with 4K output when you have your Switch in the dock. Yeah. The Switch itself would not be outputting 4K. Well, maybe it would have. I mean, depending on what the OLED screen can do. I mean, most phones and stuff can probably do 4K now anyway. I know some of the the higher-end ones can anyways, but no idea. No idea indeed, but uh, this kind of makes me wonder if uh, there's still, you know, aspirations of doing a 4K model of the Switch uh, down the line and in the future. So, I don't know, maybe it's just something they'll revisit once the supply chain clears up, which, granted, is not going to be into next year, or until next year at yeah, the earliest. At the very, at the very earliest, yeah. Because just everything has gone on its ear. Yeah. Pear-shaped, even. Yes. One of the (laughs) lingering effects of the COVID pandemic, but uh, certainly this time last year, we were uh, still either in lockdown or soon to be in lockdown or coming out of lockdown. But uh, a lot of the normal events on the uh, video game uh, industry calendar uh, went out the window because of COVID and were not doable because of COVID, because of mass gatherings, just uh, were not really things you wanted to have, but... uh, Thankfully, a lot of places have seen good uptake in vaccination rates. Still, some areas uh, of the world and, and here in North America, certainly where we live, some parts of our province are seeing low uptakes of vaccination. Yeah. Okay, don't quite understand it, but uh, 
You weirdos do you. Yeah, you, uh, yep. That's all I'm going to say. So, nevertheless, but uh, some areas such as uh, basically the blue states in America have had much higher vaccination rates than the red states of America. Yeah. And because of that, uh, Jeff Keighley has announced that this year's version of the Game Awards is going to go ahead with an in-person event. They're going to be holding it December 9th, uh, Thursday, December 9th, at the Microsoft Theater, and it's planned as being a, quote, full-scale in-person event, and it's going to be the typical mix of awards, world premieres, musical performances, guests, uh, people in attendance. I'd imagine you have to have a, you know, have to be fully vaccinated to be in attendance, and you're likely sitting there wearing a mask in the audience the whole time to try and do a mass gathering of people like this as safely as possible. That hasn't been announced yet, but even so, he did say the the Game Awards Orchestra will be back on stage to provide music as uh, well, and the event will be streamed live across the internet for everyone to see, and it's, uh, yeah, more details coming in the weeks ahead, but uh, yeah, still only about two months away, which, kind of crazy to think, there's only like two, three months left in the year. Yep. We, we've almost survived all of this year so far. Somehow, yes. <laughs> hard to believe. Yeah, that is quite hard to believe. So that's, that's a good sign that, uh, there's, uh, a, a return to a sense of, uh, normalcy in the offing, uh, and normal things might still be around the corner in some parts of, uh, the world, certainly some parts of North America, other parts of North America, <laughs> maybe not so much. If you go next door from California to the Silver State, to Nevada, uh, one of the most popular tourist destinations, basically since things have opened back up this year, has been Las Vegas, with uh, people from all around the states flocking to it because they've been cooped up. They just want to have that release of uh, of sin and debauchery and gambling and drinking and, and just uh, whatever else. Just really, you know. Getting out. Getting out, going to, you know, the fake city that is Las Vegas. You oh, know, yeah. To go do, you know, three, four, even go for a week. Go to a, eat a bunch of good food, see a few mm-hmm. shows, all in one kind of short period of time. That's what Vegas is great for. Yes. So, yeah, makes, makes sense that people would want to go there maybe, but it also makes sense that unfortunately, because it's basically bringing a whole bunch of people from all around the United States all together, well, it's, it's now become a hotspot again for COVID-19. It has, especially with the rise in cases of uh, the Delta variant of COVID-19. And as a result, organizers of this year's Evo event in Las Vegas have had to announce that uh, the Evo event in Las Vegas that was set for November has been canceled. Uh, the statement they put out said in part, quote, the players invited to participate in the Evo 2021 showcase represent many of the best fighters in the world. We're incredibly saddened to cancel the event. End quote. So it was set to take place on November 27th and 28th, uh, and it was going to include games like Guilty Gear Strive, Mortal Kombat 11 Ultimate, Skullgirls uh, Second Encore, Street Fighter V, Champions Edition, and Tekken 7. So Evo is currently still planning to hold an in-person event in Vegas in August of next year. I'm sure hoping that things will clear up, you know, with the uh, help of eight, another eight to nine months, if not ten months. So uh, even so, you know... Kind of, kind of the balance, kind of the contrast, and uh, yang to the yin of things getting better, but maybe not everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Not quite everywhere, you know, until, you know, we can confidently say that, you know, we've got this under control and this coronavirus is no longer a threat. 
to, you know, the most vulnerable people. It's just going to keep being the case. Absolutely going to keep being the case. And uh, that's just our reality for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, remember when it wasn't our reality? Remember when you could just freely travel places and not have to worry about or not get anxiety about getting together with people in large numbers? Yeah. I almost don't. No. <laughs> remember concerts? <sighs> yeah, I remember concerts. I miss concerts. Yep. Remember uh, other things like maybe just having a lot of people over for like a, a games night or something? Yeah. Yep. So no. Well, yeah, well, thankfully, like, you know, you if you curate your friends list and you are, you know, depending on what side of the fence you're on, if you're unvaccinated, you can have all your unvaccinated friends together. Well, not legally here, anyways, <laughs> but I'm sure you can do it. You're not too concerned with that anyway. But for the rest of us who are vaccinated, you know, we can things are starting to open up a little bit more for us. And, you know, that's a whole other debate. But, yeah, we have uh, that's not really a de- it's not really a debate on our show, but it's a debate for the world in general where, you know, the people who have been vaccinated and have their, you know, vaccine cards and stuff are, you know, allowed to basically just start living their lives normally. So thankfully we fall under that uh, umbrella. So it's true. Yeah. It's, uh, it's good. It's good to have. Uh, we don't have any fears about what's necessarily in the vaccines because hell, we couldn't even tell you what's in Tylenol. Yeah. Or the ingredients of an apple. Yeah. The, the core elements of an apple look pretty scary. There's even arsenic in there, but Hey, well, that's why you're not supposed to eat the seeds. Yeah. But, FYI. Yeah. No, but I know th- there's trace amounts throughout the whole apple anyways. And I mean, still it's like, so I'm not a scientist though. I trust the scientists. They've gone to school. They've done all these tests. I don't know. I trust the scientific process, I guess. I mean, if call you me ha- a fool, but for other things, uh, <laughs> if you've yes. ever gone to the doctor and, you know, just had uh you know, like a chest infection or something, you just got uh, some broad spectrum antibiotics. You ever question what's in there? Yeah. You ever gotten some amoxicillin or something like that? Do you question what's in the amoxicillin? Do you question the credentials of the doctor who's assigning it to you or, or the pharmacist? No. You take it on faith and that and trust that people who... People know what they're doing. Yes. They've gone to school for this. You have some faith that they're going to abide by their teachings and their best practices and best knowledge and they're going to take care of you because yeah. that's what they have sworn to do. That's their job. Yeah. So I don't really get the uh, premise of questioning things now. Yeah. All of a sudden when it's convenient or scary. But the whole thing of, yeah, just to go on a little bit of a other side note on that note, questioning stuff is fine, but like, unless you're going to actually properly consider your findings and, you know, qual- the question like the, or consider the quality of the information you're getting, is it well vetted? Is it, you know, corroborated by evidence or is it literally just circumstantial? Like questioning goes out the window if you're literally just going to essentially take some quack at their, you know, word without verifying what they're saying. Like if it's just one conspiracy video on YouTube, you know, breeding, you know, a bunch of other conspiracy videos on YouTube, go back to the source. Can you find the source? Is it obvious where the information actually came from? If, if the answer is no, should you be considering that information? Just, just a thought. I don't, I know that'll maybe be a radical thing for some people to say, like maybe I've been bought by someone, but 
No, like it's... If you've been bought by someone, you really don't have a lot to show for it. No, why am I complaining about my dishwasher <laughs> that... <laughs> I mean, you've been bought by, you know, Big Pharma, but certainly not by Big Dishwasher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. But as we took a few moments there to, uh, to you know, just uh, have nostalgic feelings about things from yesteryear, like concerts and, and mass gatherings and whatnot, uh, let's do that in earnest now with an official segment on the show. We call it The Blast from the Past. As I said, it's uh, where we take some time to uh, uh, espouse nostalgic feelings and uh, uh, fet things that are celebrating milestone anniversaries. We have two items to talk about this week, both very big parts of the 90s where Dennis and I grew up. The yes. 90s. Uh, one is a TV series. The other is a console. It played video games. And you could have up to four people come over and play certain games all at the same time. I think it was kind of one of the first times you could uh, have that happen. Like right off the hop. Yeah, without some sort of like expansion dongle that you'd have to plug in somewhere on the system. Yeah. Uh, well... Where would you like to start? Well, where would you like to start? Uh, I think, uh, you know what, let's start with the TV series. Yeah, that's sort of what I was thinking too. Well, we'll get that out of the way. Uh, but it was actually, uh, an, I don't want to say an important part, but kind of a staple of us growing up in the 90s and certainly, uh, in our post, or not post, but after school TV watching. Yeah. Uh, it is a show that aired on PBS for four seasons or four years, uh, started with its first episode airing on September 30th, 1991. It is a children's game show that also aimed to be educational. It is Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Yeah, the with the whole premise being, it was essentially a quiz show where the competitors on the show had to basically use, like based on clues given by Lynn Thigpen, who played... Uh, was it the chief? The chief. The chief of whatever detective agency that the kids were uh, uh, gumshoes as a part in. They're trying to track down Carmen Sandiego, the international criminal who has stolen... Uh, some artifact or some, like, landmark or something. It was always usually something ridiculous, like... Oh, the she Leaning stolen, Tower of Pisa. Yeah, she's stolen the, the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and you, just based on, like, pictures and things, you had to basically figure out where her next move was like, Oh, I think she took it to this city, which is in this place. It was, it was all learning geography. It was, it was a way to teach you geography is all it was. It was without directly trying to, you know, burn geography into your head either. Yeah. Without just basically it being a half an hour of someone saying, this is Algeria. (laughs) Algeria is here. Like, no, that'd be a terrible TV show. This was actually, it was engaging and, you know, they had fun, it was fun. fun characters. Also, Rockapella. Like, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, you know, maybe the only time that an acapella singing group has ever been considered cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, oh, you might consider Boys to Men in that as well. You know, they've done some acapella performances and, you know, they're considered cool as well. Fine, I'll give them that. But they're not strictly acapella. Their music when has like backing tracks and mm-hmm. stuff to it. So, but Rockapella, purely acapella. They would, you know, they had the one guy with the deep bass voice that, you know. <laughs> they did theme music and apparently Rockapella also uh, cut together all the interstitial music and all the backing tracks for everything. Yeah. Uh, did the end uh, theme as well. So they were a big part, like a big part of the show as well because they'd be featured live on stage on the set too as uh, the show would uh, start and come into, uh, come to air, you know, for the, uh, uh, taping, and it would be three kids aged like 10 to 14, 
and they would be competitors on the show, ultimately getting points for answering questions related to geography. Like it was a one category, one category show. The category geography. Yeah. It was literally geography, but like they made it fun because every week there was also like a gallery of rogues that Carmen San Diego never worked alone. Carmen San Diego would always be working in concert with some other crook, you know, including, uh, the Contessa, who was a so-called criminal of style who fancied herself to be near royalty. I'm just reading off the Wikipedia Indeed. characters now. Uh, uh, Double Trouble, who was like a pair of yin and yang party boy twins with quarter moon shaped heads. Yes, I remember them because they kind of seemed very similar to a, uh. Like they were Jack Nicholson basically. Kinda, but with moons for heads and which was similar to a McDonald Land character at the time. Yeah, who is Mac tonight. Yeah, that's right. Who, believe it or not, like on another, you know, that's internet. Right. Internet aside, rabbit hole has turned into a symbol for, you know, hate groups on the internet for some reason. What? Yeah. How? I, it's something involving 4chan is all I know. Like, well, just, you know, look up Mac tonight when you get home or, you know, if you're, whenever you're finished listening to this or whatever, I'm on your phone, whatever you're, look it up. It's, it's kind of disturbing how it kind of turned into a hate symbol because we remember it as just, you know, that weird, like, when they were, <laughs> In the 90s, again, all the weird things happened in the 90s yeah. was, you know, they had like this moon man basically just like playing piano and being like a cool jazz type guy trying to sell more sophisticated stuff at McDonald's. Still McDonald's, but still. Uh, anyways, yeah. So, yeah, Double Trouble was very similar to that except uh, their voice was kind of Jack Nicholson-y. Yes. Uh, they tried to be all more cool. Yeah. With uh, sunglasses on. Then there was Eartha Brute. Who was, you know, the muscular, dim-witted woman, uh, Nimoy, who was a shape-shifting alien, like Ni K N E E Moy, <laughs> uh, obviously being a pun on Leonard Nimoy, who's supposed to be like some uh, alien guy, whatever. Then there was Patty Larceny, <laughs> maybe the worst pun out of all the names. Uh, the flighty blonde schoolgirl with a sweet and giggly personality, uh, Robo Crook, who is a cyborg, <laughs> obviously spoof of RoboCop. Uh, Sarah Nade, who was the loud, obnoxious teenage punk rocker with rainbow-colored hair. Uh, Top Grunge, who was my favorite of the rogues gallery, who was basically the burly, unkempt biker guy who was always riding a heavily polluting motorcycle. Uh, he was always dirty and surrounded by flies, and he was constantly sneezing. Like, he sounded like he was sick. Like, <laughs> constantly, like, oozing gross from his face. <laughs> you know, and sneezing and wheezing and... Anyways, it was gross. Uh, then there's Vic the Slick, who is like, you know, basically the used car salesman, uh, with his seedy mustache and shifty eyes and slick black hair. Of course. Uh, and then finally Wonder Rat was the superhero parody who wore a makeshift rat costume. And that was it. <laughs> Don't remember exactly anything about Wonder Rat, but yeah, some of them were more memorable than others. Yes. Uh, but yeah. So basically, it's kind of surprising it lasted as long as it did as a show, because there's only so much mileage you could honestly get out of that type of show. Well, the interesting thing is it was based on the Carmen Sandiego computer games from yeah. the mid-80s, which weren't that substantive. Certainly, you and I played them in school. Yeah, exactly. Back on the old Apple II. Yeah. I recall, I distinctly recall horrifying our grade six teacher 
as it was uh, uh, my turn along with my my you know table mate at the time. It was our turn, you know, to have computer time and learn geography, and we were playing the Carmen San Diego game. And you're supposed to. The point of the game is you go through, you read through the clues, and then you make assessments and determinations based on the clues offered to try and advance and progress through the game. Uh, this particular instance, when our teacher came along to watch myself and my table mate playing Carmen San Diego on the Apple II, he saw us just making wild guesses and just like clicking, you know, going through all the options until we hit the right one. We yeah. weren't trying. No. We were just like going through the motions of it. We weren't trying to do any deductive reasoning whatsoever. No, because that's normally how you would play video games like that. It's like, well, just keep going until you get the right answer. Okay, done. Next. Yeah. What's the next thing? Oh, I only get three chances? Okay, well, I'll just restart and keep going until I've gone through. And keep track. Yeah, oh, good thing I've got this piece of loose leaf next to me. Yeah. Yeah. Which, in and of itself, is also, you're still figuring out, like, if you're taking notes on, like, literal, like, geographic stuff, who cares how it matters? But, I, yeah, our teacher was a little bit of a crazy person in grade six. He was high strung. Very high strung. That's uh, maybe an incredible understatement. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, so but those that was the basis. Uh, that's what the franchise of Carmen Sandiego started life as. Then evolving into the TV show on PBS, which re- had a successful run of four seasons. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the show without mentioning the final bonus round, yes. where the child who won the first couple of rounds would then have a challenge put before them. They would be asked ten questions related to geography. They would have to uh, basically mark out an answer on a big ass map that was on the floor, and they'd yeah. have to run and put a lit beacon marker on what they thought was the right answer. Yeah. And the beacon wouldn't light up until it was on the right answer. Yeah. So it would always be like some geographical question, like blah, blah, blah. You know, this, this country's, you know, uh, capital city is Cairo. Oh, that's Egypt. Uh, uh, uh. And then you have to basically take this beacon, put it on Egypt. And if it lights up, yeah, next. And then you have to keep going until you got as many of the beacons as you could. And there was like some minimum number that you needed lit to. I think it was like seven out of ten. Yeah, you had to quote unquote catch Carmen San Diego. Yeah. And yeah. More often than not, they they didn't get it, from what I recall. True. I, I, but granted, uh, you know, you may run out of time, you get confused, especially if you were dealing with, uh, Europe. You know, there's a lot of countries in uh, a small area there. I did always enjoy watching to see if the map was North America. Yeah. And then see if, uh, you know, there were questions about Canada and see... If see how poorly they did on the Canada questions? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was my little shot in front, and if they get it wrong, ha ha ha, laugh at them. Yeah, exactly. You silly American child. Uh, but it was like six, a 60-second bonus round of just pure chaos. Yeah. Based around geography. It was a really interesting idea, and uh, really enjoyed it. And they did it uh, basically surrounded by the audience, too, which was all kids. Yeah, exactly. So that conferred a certain level of energy to the experience as well. Yeah, like a lot of those shows did back then. I also like, I'd like to mention too that the, the thing I found amusing about Where in the World is Carmen San Diego is it did go on for five seasons. It had 295 episodes. So that's a lot of episodes per sure season. Sure is. Um, but again, it was a game show, you know, like it's, you know, it's not like they're writing, you know, a new story or anything. Like it's just, oh, she's in, uh, this throw a dart at the map. Oh, she's in, uh, Japan. Japan, great. So whatever. Like, anyways, when that show ended, they tried to keep it going a little bit with a follow-up show, which for some reason I thought didn't last very long, but apparently 
it lasted for two seasons or 115 episodes as well. It was where in time is Carmen San Diego as well? I remember this. I remember watching it on, uh, I think, I want to say it was like ABC. Yeah, uh, I, I, I wanted to say Fox maybe, but ABC also sounds right. It wasn't, I, it wasn't PBS anymore. No. Uh, and I recall watching it and uh, trying to get into it. I think it came around the time when Disney bought out ABC and started to redo their Saturday morning programming. And I distinctly recall watching it and being, you know, okay, a little unenthused, and then getting to the bonus round and it not being the same. Yeah. The bonus round would be a child basically going to basically 10 different stations, them yeah. being held up by whatever impediment, and they'd have to answer a question right, and then do something to open the gate for them to move through to the next station. Yeah, I, I didn't really watch it for the same reason. They didn't seem to have that same level of energy or hype no. that the original show had. And also, it was it did that other weird 90s thing of basically conveying, you know, the the idea of like, oh, you're, because you were in some sort of like, because you worked for some time agency that was able to do time travel, mm-hmm. timey-wimey nonsense – you were surrounded by dry ice, basically, <laughs> or like you know the the fog machine style, like fog yes. and like lasers going through fog and like the dark, kind of like weirdly lit, Bill and Ted essentially type like settings and stuff. And oh. the, yeah, they they did that a lot in the nineties when they were trying to convey, oh, you're a time traveler, eh? Mm. Well, go into this weird, like, angular room with all this, you know... The mist of time blowing all around you. (laughs) It's like, okay. Like, I do recall for that bonus round where the kids had to go from station to station and basically be held up and have to answer a question, is that the set they were on was basically all in black except for the station the kid was at with that low-level fog just right above the, the floor. Yeah. And it just was a completely different energy. It lacked life, like... It lacked fun, lacked enjoyment, which might explain why it only lasted two seasons. I mean, still, like, over a 100 episodes, which, granted, they're easy enough to bang out, like, five, six, seven in a day, because it's a kid's game show, but still, uh, yeah, different experience. And then fast forward to modern times, where Netflix picked uh, Carmen Sandiego back up and has done at least one season, maybe more, of an animated series based on Carmen Sandiego. There also apparently was a animated series... Also from the late 90s, which I don't think I was aware of, called Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego? Was that on Fox? Uh, I think I, it was. It was a Deke production. I vaguely yeah, yeah, recall it was, that. It was Fox, yes. I vaguely recall that. I at least saw ads for it. I don't know how much I ever watched it, but... Yeah, I don't think I watched it either, but yeah. Nevertheless, the original one, a really fun kids game show that was educational, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? That yeah. was fun. That's how you do a kid's educational show. Also, an, just a, another brief aside here. Well, not really aside. It's the, the thing I'm remembering after reading through the Wikipedia page. Uh, another thing that, you know, screamed very 90s was National Geographic. <laughs> like not either National Geographic magazine, whatever, but the, they also had the kids magazine, which I was a subscriber to for a, a while. Uh, the National Geographic World. Mm-hmm. And I do remember like, I subscribed to National Geographic World for several years, and all of the you know show's questions were verified by National Geographic World. So it, in my kid brain, it had this air of legitimacy in it where it's like, oh, yeah, National Geographic World, they know stuff about the world. So that's clearly <laughs> it's clearly that's legit information. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, even though in hindsight, it's like, no, they were just some magazine. <laughs> but whatever. 
Well, I think even a lot of the prizes too, or at least for the runners up, uh, you know, third and second place was a subscription to National Geographic or National Geographic World. Uh, what exactly the top prize would be for someone, for a kid who went through, won the show and ended up uh, being successful in the bonus round, I do not recall. You know, it may have been a trip somewhere within the continental uh, 48 states. Probably, yeah. You know, in economy class, you know, during off-peak times. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But also something I didn't know either, just since we're just reading off Wikipedia, or I'm reading off Wikipedia at this point. uh, Apparently, just before we move on to the next blast from the past, I, I think it's just worth mentioning that what's kind of interesting about Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego is apparently the show was created partially in response to the results of a National Geographic survey uh, that indicated Americans had alarmingly little knowledge of geography, with one in four being unable to locate the Soviet Union or the Pacific Ocean. Well, that's a damning indictment. Yeah, the show's co- yeah, and it, thus leading into the, you know, National Geographic verifying all the answers and, you know, uh, they also saying National Geographic World provided the prizes to the contestants in the form of subscriptions to their magazine. Yeah, so... Yeah, anyways. Uh, How do you not find the Soviet Union or the Pacific Ocean? The Pacific, I mean, there's a whole seaboard of the United States that touches the Pacific Ocean. Like, the whole, like, eastern seaboard? <laughs> like, that's bananas? Yeah, I, I like, there's two oceans on either side of the United States. There's the Atlantic Ocean, there's the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. How do you, how do you not find, like, you're not being asked to find the Indian Ocean. Yeah, you're not, yeah, or, you know, more obscure, like, where's the Southern Sea? Like, you're not, like, weird little, like, demarcations of water within a larger body of water. Like, that's not what they're asking, or like, where's this one specific lake in, you know, Lake of the Woods, Ontario, or something? Like, no, it's nothing crazy like that. It's the Pacific Ocean. It's one of, like, the two largest bodies of water on the entire planet. Also, the Soviet Union. They were your enemies in the Cold War for, like, 30 years. How do you not know where they are? Like, at the time that survey would have been taken, they still had all their smaller satellite countries as part of them, so they were their landmass was considered even larger than what Russia is today. Yeah. The Soviet Union was huge on the map back when we were growing up. Like, it was like, because, you know, we're old enough that we remember, you know, geography books that had the USSR in them, and it was just like, oh, that's the biggest country in the world. Look at that place. Look how huge it is. Of course, you know, not knowing about the Mercator projection or anything like that when we were kids, but yeah, not to not know that is crazy. I, of course, am now reminded of that one uh, skit from SCTV where I think it's uh, uh, Dave Thomas was the, uh, uh, like, uh, Soviet uh, game show host and just showing all the different countries that could fit into the Soviet <laughs> Union. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and just how mighty and superior the Soviet Union is to, to the rest of the world. But look, all these other countries and smaller countries, they're so insignificant, they could fit in here. Ah, Egypt has such big pyramids, but look, Egypt fit, barely makes a dent into the Soviet Union. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? An educational kids game show that actually was fun and educational. And I think it's one of the rare times, like, something that's trying to be educational for kids succeeded. Yeah, and is actually fun. Yeah. And isn't just, like, spouting facts at you with, like, 
forcing you to just kind of like adhere to some boring format. No, like, it wasn't just dry, passive, uh, you know, sit on your thumbs while you're being lectured to. No, you know, there were kids being involved. There's trivia, you know, there's quizzes and, you know, things you could try and answer as you're watching at home. Yeah. And then you just, you know, watch chaos at the end with the last bonus round. Yeah, exactly. Yelling at the big, like, no, it's Egypt's over there. No, Peru's over there. Ah. <laughs> Whatever, whatever they were doing. Exactly. So, uh, an entertaining time was where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Uh, it ended on December twenty second, nineteen ninety five, which is just uh, a little bit less than a year before the uh, next item we're going to talk about was released. For the next item we are going to talk about was released to uh, people everywhere in North America on September 29th, 1996. It is a console that people would play video games on. It had the capacity to do four player right off the hop. It is the Nintendo 64. Yeah, or N64, as us cool kids used to call it. Uh, it's true. Nintendo 64 was kind of a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, but the Nintendo 64, uh, yeah. I remember when it came out. I think, I think I was talking to you actually when we were both in grade seven sewing class that one of us had, I think you had rented it maybe. Or I, I was considering buying one with birthday mm-hmm. money or something, and we were just kind of comparing experiences and whatever games we'd played yet. And yeah, it was, uh, I think, you know, in terms of like seismic shifts in perception of what video games could be, I don't think it can be understated how important that first generation of 3D games was. Yes. And if we take a look at, uh, uh, the launch games, for the N64, uh, probably the, one of the most important launch games ever for a system was what came with the N64, or came out at the same time as the N64, that was Super Mario 64. Yeah. What, one of the two launch games. Yeah. The other one's Pilot Wings. Yeah, I mean, which, Pilot is Wings al- 64. Yeah, which is also a great game as well, but Super Mario 64. Mind-blowing. Yeah, if, I mean... Yeah, the PlayStation was out a little bit earlier, but most people, you know, I don't think people treated Sony as a known quantity yet. Like, they didn't really look at the PlayStation and go, oh, yeah, like, we should definitely, you know, go there for our 3D games. And also, I don't know, really, if the 3D games had really picked up until Nintendo came out with the N64 with 3D games off the hop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might be getting my, you know, dates mixed up here and everything in terms of like when things came out or what was popular, but I, I want to say Mario 64 was the first popular 3D video game. Well, well, I think because of uh, the reverence and just the cachet that the character uh, of Mario had and the, you know, the cachet the franchise of, of Super Mario had as well, uh, there may have been a Crash Bandicoot or a Spyro game on Sony PlayStation prior to Mario 64 being released, but those are new franchises. Those are new characters. They don't have the same recognition that Mario does. Yeah. So, uh, you know, sure you're able to, to run around this field and, and collect apples in Spyro and, or in, in Crash Bandicoot or whatnot, but uh, nevertheless, being able to run around and, you know, dodge a, as a bullet bill comes past you in, in Mario 64, that was goddamn mind blowing. Like being able to, to, do all sorts of like crazy runs and jumps and just go all around uh Princess Peach's castle. Amazing. Having a chain chomp in full 3D trying to butt your ass. Ridiculous. Yeah. Like you actually got to run or feel like you were running around and actually in 
the Mushroom Kingdom as opposed to being like some observer to the side of it. Yeah. Uh, playing it. And also, too, if you figured it out, perhaps you, uh, you know, if you were of the era, you saw maybe a demo kiosk with Mario 64 on an N64 at your local retailer or whatnot. Just being able to go and play through, I think, was very beneficial, get an idea of what the game was doing, but also being able to manipulate Mario's face just on the menu screen. Yeah. When you saw someone do that, that was crazy. Yeah, it was. It's like, wait, this is not just a passive menu screen? Yeah. You're not just pressing, it's not just there with an image to wait until you press start. Wait, you can do stuff? Wait, you're using this joystick to drag stuff around? Whoa. Whoa, this is cool and crazy. Like, I, I, in, the N64 did not have a lot of, you know, absolute breakthrough smash hits. No. But the ones it did have can be argued are seminal. Yeah. Like, it was, it, you know, like, it, it was like definitely the console wars were over in that, you know, like the, the previous generation, like, you know, it was pretty much a draw. Like, you know, Nintendo didn't really, like, I think maybe Nintendo came out maybe a little bit further than Sega, but at the end of the day, people have fond memories from both and there are equal experiences on both. Overall, I think this generation, though, we saw a shift in, you know, because we also saw some games come out for both the N64 and the PlayStation. So that was an interesting thing where, like, oh, maybe things aren't fully exclusive anymore. Mm Third-party exclusivity is no longer a thing. So there was that, but, you know, there was, like, the thing where the games that were exclusive for both consoles, arguably, you know, well, maybe not both consoles necessarily, but... The people who had a PlayStation would still have something to miss out on if they, you know, didn't have a 964 because there were still games that, you know, would have been important to the whole, you know, ecosystem of playing video games at the time, like GoldenEye. Like GoldenEye was basically like, not like it, it was then what Call of Duty is now. Yes. Like without a doubt, it's without what GoldenEye did for people's interest in first-person shooters and multiplayer, you know, death matches, essentially, I don't think we would see, like, the same type of, you know, experience now. It's the one that kicked it off, really, big time, like, in terms of, like, a broader appeal. Like, and I'm not talking about, like, Counter-Strike or any, like, you know, Doom death matches or things like that, that were sort of, like restricted to LAN parties and things that, you know, maybe only the more quote-unquote nerdy people would be more adept at setting up. But this was out of the box. You just plug four controllers in, and as long as you have one TV that was big enough for people to see, or hell, not even big enough to see, a lot of people would play on tinier screens. As long as you just have an N64, enough controllers, the game, and a TV, you can have, you know, a death match with three of your friends. Yeah. Yeah, the barrier to entry was greatly reduced. Yeah. For a, a multiplayer. And not just that, then uh, four-player multiplayer in things that maybe weren't death matches, like four-player Mario Kart. Yeah. Four-player Mar- four Mario Party. Yeah, exactly. Mario Party started on the N64. It sure did. Like, we're, you know, we're getting a, a classics uh, version of uh, a Mario Party uh, game coming to the Switch uh, later on this month, and that's all well and good. But the genesis of that is on the N64. And as you and I recall, one of the mini games at that time being the tug of war, 
which required you as the user to spin around the analog joystick on the N64 controller, and many of us, myself included, ending up with uh, burns. Yeah. Blisters on our, the palms of our hand. <laughs> blisters on the palm of your hand. Places where blisters should never be. No, that's a painful place. Yeah. I distinctly recall as a result of the uh, blister problem caused by that tug-of-war game, and it, I don't think it's ever been done, to, you know, been used since in later Mario Party games, uh, seeing it in a Nintendo Power magazine that you could write in to Nintendo and then be sent, if you requested, a special glove <laughs> for playing <laughs> that game in Mario Party. And it was basically a golf glove, but with your ring and pinky fingers uh, taken off. So yeah. your, your normal, like, Pinky fi- and ring fingers could fit through, glove coverings for your index and middle finger, and certainly through the palm of your hand to play the tug-of-war game in Mario Party on N64. So, uh, again, Mario Party, one of the killer titles, or, like, one of the, like, kind of new t- titles that actually became a standard title for Nintendo as a result. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I mean, as well as, you know, Ocarina of Time sort yeah. of redefining what people saw The Legend of Zelda be- to be. You know, just kind of being becoming, like, another seminal gaming experience. Absolutely. Uh, and redefining the franchise kind of going forward. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. But, but really, like, at the end of the day, though, I think the majority of the Ed64 library was kind of garbage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, it was. Like you, you had like weird, feeble attempts at like role-playing games and stuff, like Quest sixty-four and just weird ports and stuff, and just a lot of shovelware as well. Um, I, I think this is where we started to see started to see the uh, technical uh, differences between Nintendo and their competitors, with Nintendo choosing to maintain a cartridge-based system, yeah. Sony and the Sega Saturn uh, at the time going with a, uh, a CD or CD-ROM-based system. Yeah. so Which CDs, had greater capacity. Greater capacity. Of course, like, you know, there's a couple of, like, interesting how-did-they-do-it videos on the internet, you know, about, like, people at the time, specifically uh, the the developer of Crash Bandicoot, how he had to basically rewrite how CD-ROMs were basically used at the time because of loading problems as well. Like, so there's trade-offs. Mm-hmm. CD-ROMs had slow loading times, but he wanted faster loading times of CD-ROMs, so he had to do a bunch of custom hardware work as well as software development work. Very interesting video if you're interested in deep technical dives and things. But, um, yeah, none of that, none of those problems really existed with the N64 because your games are more expensive, but you're going to have faster loading times, like no loading times, basically. Mm-hmm. So that was the trade-off. And, you know, whenever you saw certain games that, like, I remember it was a very impressive technical feat to see Resident Evil 2 released for the N64. That's true. Because that was a game that had, like, full voice acting, had a lot of, like, full motion video, which is what we called cutscenes at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh yeah, it was just... It was being touted as being like the the game with the biggest most the biggest memory capacity I think of all time at that time when it was released for the N sixty four and it was a heavy cartridge as well because of all the extra like memory chips that they have to have in it. I don't know how well it sold because <laughs> I think it was also pretty expensive, but yeah, it was like when the games were on the N sixty four. I f- this this is probably just you know. Nostalgia, clouded memories, but I think they performed better generally. Like, like, 
performance wise, but you know, they're always more expensive and like maybe N64 didn't have the, the wider array of games that the PlayStation had. So that, I think that's sort of where it stood out. Like the games that were must play games for the N64 were absolute must plays. Yes. But there, there were very few and far between. Yeah, I think that's uh, completely fair. You could have a more respectable uh, uh, library of good PlayStation games uh, than you uh, could have, uh, you know, a good, you know, library of, of good N64 games. It was basically like me, you know, there'd be a lot of, or a few great games, some good ones, but a lot of me- mediocre stuff. Yeah. Uh, although if you were uh, a wrestling fan at the time too, N64 was home to some of the best wrestling games. Yeah, like WCW versus NWO World Tour. Yeah, and then WCW NWO Revenge, which then those gave way to the WWF games, which were uh, WrestleMania 2000 and WWF No Mercy. Yeah. Which, uh, if you're a wrestling fan of these days, uh, and perhaps you're hip to what the kids are into with all elite wrestling, yep. uh, Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks... Uh, as that company goes forward and works on producing their own video game, from what they've shown and I think what they've said, they're very inspired by games like No Mercy. Well, also let's not forget Kenny Omega went to our high school, was in our, was like- He was just, a year ahead of us. He was a year ahead of us, but the culture around was like kind of similar because, you know, we, we would have been influenced by people who were, had older siblings and stuff who would have been his age anyways, mm-hmm. so- not, not to humble brag. We don't know Kenny Omega personally. No, no. If we, if we were standing next to him, he'd have no idea who the hell we are or where, where we are from. Yeah. Uh, I was actually in a shared class with Kenny Omega. Yeah. Uh, it was a grade 10, 11 split French class, um, in the early parts of the 2000s. And he was I, in grade 11, I was in grade 10. And I was in band class because he was, you know, he had a whole entourage of friends that, you know, were all wrestling guys. Very hardcore into wrestling. And I never actually thought that he was the one that would become the famous wrestler. Really? I always thought that, you know, his – it doesn't matter. We don't need to get into yeah. this on this podcast. But another but guy. Another guy in their group was the one I thought would be the other wrestler because they were all doing wrestling and stuff. They would – they had like, you know, they all they were all doing – I don't remember what promotion when they were all in high school or whatever, but Yeah. Anyways, it doesn't really matter, but yeah, it, it makes sense to me that, you know, people, someone from our age range who kind of grew up even geographically similar to where we were from would have had a similar idea for what a good wrestling game should have been. So certainly. And yeah. they, they are, uh, uh, from what they've shown, it looks like they're going with the slightly exaggerated character models that were in the N64 wrestling games. Yeah. And they're going to go kind of with that same like control style approach as well. So, uh, that's a really interesting idea and something to point out as well. And I still, uh, I think I mentioned it to, uh, uh, someone a couple of weeks ago that I would love to just go to whatever event Kenny Omega is uh, wrestling at, be it AEW, maybe something else, try to get front row and just go with a sign saying, you know, I was in Kenny Omega's class in whatever year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and with like the symbol of our high school on it as well. Yeah. See if he does a double take. If oh, he, he does. Fantastic. That's a win in my book. Yeah. That's a big W, as the kids say. Sure is. Uh, I understood the assignment. <laughs> yes. Uh, but the N64, uh, when it hit, and it had a hit, it was genre-defining. It was, like, almost almost a revolution. Yeah. 
in things like uh, Mario 64, uh, Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, uh, having four-player multiplayer right off the hop. The, we haven't even talked about the controller. As you mentioned earlier, when we talked about the N64 games coming to Switch Online and the ability to buy a nostalgic uh, replica of an N64 controller, you mentioned that it's one of the worst controllers you've ever played. It's stupid. It's it, like... It's like a three-pronged monstrosity. Like, the majority of the games, when they would make, like, they just basically had your hand in the middle of it, because that's where the, the analog stick was, and the mm-hmm. analog stick was the main control. For some reason, when you're holding the middle, your right hand can only hold the right side of the controller, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. that's how it works. But, you know, that would then cut off basically the whole D-pad and the left shoulder button. So they had a trigger on the back. So it you you ended up sort of like, sort of with a shoulder button anyways, and also a sort of a D-pad in the, uh, the, the analog stick. And it was the first, I'll, I will hand it to them that it was the first controller ever to feature an analog stick. Mm-hmm. So like that wasn't really a thing yet. And it was, it was also kind of mind blowing Despite how stupid and awkward the controller was, it was kind of mind-blowing to be able to just press the stick a little bit and have your character walk slower and then press it, like, you know, further and have your character start running. Like, that was unheard of. It it absolutely was. It was sensitive. Yeah. It wasn't just pressing on the D-pad and your character taking off. Uh, but also it was the first uh, controller I can think of to feature two different, like, directional input methods. Yeah. Even if one of them was essentially... In a, like, inaccessible while you were using the other. Yeah. Inelegant in its design and, and execution, but the idea is there. Look at all the controllers these days. Yeah. You've got at least one analog stick and at least one D-pad. Yeah, so I mean, I, I will hand it to Nintendo. They basically set the standard for years to come, but they did it in a weird, awkward way, and someone else had to kind of, like, iterate on it for them. They did. But still. Camera controls, like yeah. the, the cluster of four yellow C-buns. That was your camera control. Yeah. You could swing the camera around to things. Wild. Furthermore, rumble. Yeah. Game, you know, game centric and game dictated vibration in the controller with the uh, addition of the uh, accessory that was the rumble pack, which added wicked vibration to your game. Whoever had the idea to sell it alongside the, uh, or in- include it with Star Fox 64, uh, genius. I hope that person got a raise or at least a <laughs> extra vacation time. But yeah, look. Built-in vibration to controllers. Started with the N64 controller. Yeah. Well, controller, you know, vibration in the controller, in like a, a force feedback. Yes. Yeah, even though you had to have the separate rumble pack. Whatever. Separate rumble pack and batteries. It wasn't built-in, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that idea, again, started there with the N64. So uh, while it didn't really have the games or, uh, you know, the best uh, time at the market didn't maybe sell the best. It was kind of a low point for Nintendo comparatively to the success uh, previously of the Super Nintendo and uh, NES. Um, necessary to help get gaming to where we are today. Yeah. So I think that's fair to say. N64, you turn 25 years old, uh, having released on September 29th, 1996. And also uh, prior to that, we spoke about the educational kids game show that was Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego when it, uh, because it debuted on September 30th, 1991, 30 years ago. Uh, still entertaining. The fashion, those jackets, ridiculous. They don't <laughs> hold up. No, they don't. Uh, but the idea, well executed. So uh, tip of the cap to everyone involved there. 
and uh, let us know your thoughts. Did you enjoy the chaos at the end of Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? Were you always rooting for people to uh, get it right and win or just see how they would screw up and fail? Let us know. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook at The Arcade Show on both those platforms. And just a quick note on things before we exit on out of here. Uh, next week for us here in Canada is Thanksgiving. So we will be off uh, in observance of that to spend time with uh, our fully vaccinated families uh just getting wrecked on turkey and ham you know doing shots of gravy and whatever else the case might be way too much cool whip yes i think we're doing chicken this year instead of turkey oh different yeah because yeah anyways one of my sisters is holding it this year which is probably why so grandparents and parents are not uh Dictating the traditional menu, but, uh. Interesting. Yeah, that's why it's chicken. It's, it's poultry of some it's kind of It's a anyway. white meat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you put gravy on it, you can't tell the difference. Pretty, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. yeah so, fair enough. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm interested yeah. to hear how it goes, but we'll join you again in a couple of weeks time towards the middle of the month. So, uh, be good. Be safe until then. Go get your shot if you haven't already. Or just drag someone to go get theirs if they haven't already. Just, uh, hit them in the head with a frying pan, classic cartoon style, and, uh, plop them down. Yes. It's fine. Totally acceptable. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let us know how it goes, uh, uh, regardless. And uh, if you haven't already, you have time to subscribe to our program on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So until next time, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.